My name's Nick. We're keeping it easy breezy tonight and answering the question, does God denigrate women? Not easy breezy at all. Important though. Denigrate, to say that something is not good or important. So our question really, sorry, I'm going to center this because it's driving me nuts. The question really is, does God minimize or oppress or sideline or diminish women? And I just want to start right out and say, this is not an academic question. There are stories in this room. There are experiences. There are moments in your life, particularly those among us who are women, where you may have felt this from Christians or from the church. And so, of course, we're not simply going to be able to approach this clinically, but we also aren't able in one moment to answer every moment that we've all experienced. And so all we can do tonight, Rowena and I, is try and chart a course through Scripture to, to try and help illuminate what God truly thinks about women, how He truly loves them, how He truly loves and cares for men and women equal of worth and dignity. So that's what we're going to try and do tonight. And Rowena's going to help us as well. So good evening, everybody. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm Rowena, and I'm one of the interns here at church. And it's always a privilege to be here and to open up God's Word with you, especially alongside Nick. But this question, does Christianity denigrate women? Well, I, as a woman, have had my own experiences of growing up in the church and being a woman within the church, and I know that there will be people here who will also have had their own experiences too. Now, for some people, you might be sitting here tonight thinking, of course it doesn't, and why are we even addressing this question? But others, the answer might be an immediate yes, and that could have been a really painful part of your Christian life um, within the church. And I was talking about this topic outside last week um, with two women, and I asked them, do you think that Christianity denigrates women? And one of them said no, but the other one said yes. So that's evidence that there's a whole range of lived experiences here in the room. But I think it's really important right now that we make a distinction between our own experiences of Christianity and the church and what God teaches what we see in the Bible, what Christianity actually teaches about women and God's heart toward them. So we have a limited time today, but it is our goal to try to unpack what does God say, what does Christianity really teach about women, and it is our goal to answer this question with a resounding no, God does not denigrate women. God loves women, God upholds women, God affirms women, but it is clear that there have been times throughout the church's history where the church has lived and embodied and presented Christianity to the world in ways that have not matched God's heart toward women. And so we're going to be addressing and looking at that today as well. So let's start at the beginning where God really nails down the foundational realities of men and women. You've got your Bibles, Genesis 1, very easy to find, page 1. We're given in Genesis 1 a, a a cosmic, um, poetic vision of how God created absolutely everything. It begins, in the beginning, God. Nothing else exists at this point, only the divine one. And it's a poetic picture because God speaks, and out of his speech, things come from nothing. You've got land and, and light and water and trees and animals, and all these things spring forth simply from the imaginative power of the speech of God. It follows this poetic picture of God speaking, things coming about, God looking at what he's made and, and commenting upon it and says, it was good the first day. 
It was good the second day. It was good the third day. Until we come to what we had read beautifully by Bella, this picture of humanity when something shifts. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creation that move along the, the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you jump down to verse 31 and we get a shift. It says this, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Why? Because in the mind of the divine one, humanity is the pinnacle of creation. You are the crown jewel of everything that God has made. You think, oh, I already know that. Well, we'll get to Genesis 3 in a minute. You've got this picture of humanity being created in the image or the likeness of God. This isn't just throwaway language. This is going to define so much of the Scriptures going forth and the reality of what it means to be human. So what does it mean? Well, we see immediately in the text, verse 26, let's make mankind in our image so that they may rule over the fish, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals. This is the sense in which we look like God as we exert the authority and the power and the rulership that he has entrusted to humanity. That is the function that's immediately given. But if you were an, one of the sort of early readers of this text, this would be sending light bulbs up for you as you read the language, because the idea of image and likeness is not just neutral language. When an emperor or a king would, would roll through the land and conquer cities and take over, what they would do as they over, oversaw this new regime is they'd place a statue in this town center of wherever they've taken over, made in their likeness. And this word for image is the word that comes up in lots of ancient literature to, to really to be this functional reminder of who's in charge here. So what is it to say that you and I are made in the image of God? It is to say that you reflect something of the divine one. As you walk down the street, as you accidentally bump someone on the shoulder, as you buy your coffee from your barista, you are interacting with eternal people who reflect the eternal God who made them. That is woven into the fabric of creation. Why am I telling you this? Because that is how God made all humans. There is no distinction apart from the fact that he names us male and female. Whether you are male or female, I'm just going to spell this out, you are made in the image of God. You are made in the likeness of the Eternal One. You bear His, His stamp upon your very nature. And so, male or female, you bear the dignity and worth that comes with reflecting God. There is no question about that. We're not in contentious territory. This is simply what Genesis 1 teaches. It gets a little trickier, though, as we jump into Genesis 2, right? Genesis 1 is this big vision, this poetic vision of the God creating all things from His speech. Genesis 2 is kind of like a zoom-in snapshot halfway through the picture. Have a look at verse 5. We're told that there's no shrub, no plants. God hasn't sent rain yet. There's no one to work the ground. And really, we've only got one human, that is, a man. And so we're introduced to this, this land, this creation, this paradise, yet unyet to be broken by sin. We're introduced to it as Eden. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It's where God has placed the man. But verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
And this is where the Bible has, in the past, in certain places, been used as a weapon against women. Firstly, this idea of ordering men and women's creation. Because man came first, women are second. That is often how this has been read. Because a woman is being created when there's a need for a helper, is to suggest that women are sort of those, those people that come alongside and deal with all of the background work so that the men can get on with the real deal. And that's often been the way that this has been used or taught in the church. But it's not at all borne out by the text. Why does God talk about it not being good for man to be alone? Well, because when he created humanity to be his image in the world, he made a male and female. There's a part of that missing. It's not good for man to try and do this ruling thing on their own because that's not how he designed it. As you come forward, you get this picture where God makes a woman from the rib of the man. That's essential. It's not that this woman is a separate creature. It actually requires taking something from the man to form her, from, her, from his side. And the man, as he encounters her, it's not particularly romantic, but it's the first poetry that humans speak. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is where it gets so important. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Why? Because apart from man and woman together, the imaging work is not done correctly. And this is not to say that marriage is the place where that happens. We see the Scriptures unpack this in the beauty of the church, in single and in all sorts of ways of life. The point is that in being made male and female, we've been made in a complementary purpose, distinct and different for sure, but equal to this task of reflecting God in the world. Why is the woman called a helper? Because she helps. <laughs> Often this has been, there's been lots made of this language of easer, of a helper, and maybe it means this and maybe it means that. The word simply means to get alongside and help, just as if I was in trouble and you came alongside me, you would help me. That's, that's simply all that's being offered. And so as the man seeks to do this work of naming creation and ruling, God says, it's, it's not good to do that alone. Here, let me bring someone to do it alongside you, functioning in the same place, doing the same work. As Genesis 1 says, man and female ruling over the world. And so we can't be making too much of this. The way that God has woven into the, the fabric of creation is male and female, perfectly equal in dignity and beauty and worth. These men and women are the pinnacle of everything that he's made in creation. And you might be thinking, that sounds lovely. Too bad it's not like that anymore. And you would be right. Something's gone wrong. As much as God has designed it like that, the reality of our existence and the stories in this room testify to something different. Perhaps of women particularly being trampled underneath the power and authority of men, maybe the reverse. We all have our own stories and experiences, and the reason we have those is Genesis 3. It falls apart, it unravels. Now, I only got time for very high-level highlights, but there was one command that God gave this man and woman, and that was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not that this fruit was a particularly spicy fruit. It, 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 it symbolized something. It was this sense of if you were going to take and eat from this, you were going to seize your future into your own hands at the expense of exiling God from your life, of taking hold of a God-sized crown and placing it upon yourself. It's, it's wanting the future that one can create for oneself without the reality of God. It's rebellion. It's mutiny, in the words of pirates. It's 
it's really the gravest thing that one could do in this place of paradise, to tell the Creator who made you perfectly that we don't need you, we're going to do it ourselves. And so, Genesis 3 speaks of the curse that comes to effectively say, this is what you have chosen in living your life like this, man and woman. I'm going to focus just on what he says to the woman, because that's pertinent to what we're talking about today. Genesis 3, verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There's this sense in which the broken, unraveling fabric of perfect creation, now marred by sin, is going to have conflict and toil between men and women. What's it going to look like? Men will rule over women, whether it's by physical domination in an ancient world or through other coercive techniques. We got no idea. All it says is it's going to happen. And as men rule over women, it says that women will have a desire for their husband. Now, lots have been, has been made of this, but to get a glimpse of what this desire word means, you just got to flip your page to Genesis 4. It's a familiar story, Cain and Abel. It's pretty gruesome when you kill your brother because God likes him more than you. But God speaks to Cain, the murderer, in verse 7, and he says, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you to rule over you, but you must rule over it. What does it mean that the woman is going to desire over her husband? It's this idea that the woman is wanting to rule over the husband, but the husband is going to stamp upon her, and it's kind of this this toil to the top of pulling one another down. Why am I telling you all of this? Because that is not what it's supposed to be like. That is an accurate description of the reality of the world, and God says that is not what it should be. That is a product of sin. That is a product of the fall. When we instill hierarchy in which men are elevated over women or women are elevated over men, we are walking in step with sin, not with the beautiful perfection that we're given in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, as these early chapters do in so many ways, they form our expectation for the whole of the Bible. We are waiting for God to bring restoration. We are waiting for God to bring redemption. We are waiting for God to bring us back to Eden. And so we don't sit here content with hierarchy and submission and all of these things. Instead, we look to Jesus and look for restoration. So as Nick said, the results of sin mean that relationships are fractured. The way that we relate to one another, and particularly the way women and men relate to one another. So one of the unsurprising realities that we see throughout Scripture is the tendency for women to be dominated, taken on occasion, subdued, disempowered, and at the very least, be laid at the mercy of the men in their world, their families, their fathers, the society of men that they live in. But what else do we see throughout Scripture? As Nick said, throughout Scripture, we see God promising to redeem and to restore and to offer a prescription for the sickness that has spread throughout the earth. And how does he do this? He does this by sending his son, by sending Jesus. And Jesus came to rebuild and to restore everything that has been broken and damaged and poisoned by sin. When Jesus arrives on this earth, we see through his actions and his words, God's heart and God's attitude toward women. And it's important to realize the world that Jesus entered, the Jewish 
culture of the time was one that was incredibly restrictive toward women. Women were bound by law and tradition and by what they couldn't do. So, for instance, women had no part to play in public life. A woman was not allowed to worship alongside a man in a synagogue. If a woman even touched the holy scriptures, the scriptures were seen as being defiled. A man could not talk to a woman in public, not even his wife. This would have been a great shame. And a woman was not trusted. A woman's testimony was not trusted in a court of law. This is the world that Jesus entered. But Women feature prominently and so often throughout Jesus' life, his entire life throughout all of the Gospels. But today I'm going to be focusing particularly on the book of Luke because that gives a really great linear account of women in Jesus' life, even before his conception, right to his death and resurrection. So what about the early life of Jesus? Well, before Jesus was even conceived, we see the revelation of his birth given to a teenage girl, Mary. So in the book of Luke, chapter 1, Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, and he tells her that she is going to miraculously conceive a son, Jesus. That Jesus will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So at this stage in humanity, Mary is the only person on the planet to be let in on God's greatest plan for humanity. Mary is trusted by God with this revelation in a time where women, culturally culturally and religiously, were never given any kind of trust to do with weighty spiritual matters like that. And Mary then goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John, who we later know is John the Baptist. These two women rejoice, and then Elizabeth prophesies over the baby in Mary's womb, and she says, "'Blessed is the child you will bear.'" And then Mary prophesies by saying, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And you have these beautiful verses of Mary and Elizabeth speaking out at the greatness of God and speaking prophetically over Jesus in Mary's womb. And then once Jesus is born and he's presented in the temple, you see that he is blessed by a man and a woman together. So he's blessed by Simeon. And then he is spoken over, he is prophesied over by Anna, the prophetess, And it says in Luke 2.36 that Anna spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So even before Jesus could walk or talk or do anything, we see the Father, we see God including and celebrating women in the earliest parts of Jesus' life. In Jesus' preaching and teaching, he frequently used women in his sermon illustrations. There was no big deal. He used women and he used men to make his points about the kingdom of God. But I wanted to focus specifically now on the way that Jesus often used women as moral examples throughout his preaching. And he did this in order to shine a light on the hypocrisy that was often shown toward them by the culture that they were in. And I wanted to call this section, Do You See This Woman? Because this is what Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee in a story in Luke 7. Jesus, um, I know we've had, we've had two kids' talks today, and Naomi spoke about the fact that Jesus saw women. He spent his life seeing women and making sure the people around him saw women as well. So in Luke 7, we've got a dinner party happening, and Jesus makes a stark contrast between Simon the Pharisee, who was the leader, the, house, the, the host of the party, and a sinful woman who has gatecrashed the party. This woman is commended by Jesus for the great love that she has shown him. She is weeping over him. She's crying. Her tears are wetting his feet. 
She dries his feet with her hair and then she anoints his feet with perfume. This woman has recognized the extent to which she has been forgiven. She understands who Jesus is. But Simon, the host, has not shown Jesus any kind of appropriate hospitality or courtesy that anyone coming to a dinner for a party would have been shown. And he has also judged this woman in his heart. So Jesus makes it very plain that he's commending this woman while showing Simon where he might need to grow in self-awareness and mercy and compassion and conviction. In Luke 21, we have Jesus and his disciples at the temple, and they are watching people bringing the offering. What does Jesus do? Again, he has a spotlight and he shines it on a widow who comes along and she gives the last coins that she has. He then compares her to the rich who are coming and are giving, but in no way near as sacrificially as she is. So he is holding women up and showing their lives and what they are doing and how they are living in the light of how God has called us all to live. And so there's many other times throughout the Gospels where Jesus just shows such tenderness and compassion toward women, particularly women who find themselves on the outcast of society, on the, on the outsides of society, the outcast women. We've got the woman at the well, the woman who was caught in adultery. And there's a story in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, of a woman who has suffered terrible bleeding for 12 years. This is a woman who would have been seen as unclean, someone who was not allowed to be anywhere near anybody, but she comes, she dares to reach out and touch Jesus. And this was unthinkable. No woman in this position should have been anywhere near him or done that. But what does Jesus do? He publicly restores her. He calls her daughter. This is the only time Jesus calls anyone daughter. And he commends her faith in front of everyone and he heals her body and soul. Throughout Jesus' life, he also had women who were part of his mission and ministry, and he had women who were his disciples. Jesus was financially supported by a number of women. And we have the verse up here um, in Luke 8, verse 1 to 3. Jesus was traveling from one city to another. We see that he was spreading the good news about God's kingdom. The 12 apostles were with him. Verse 2, also some women were with him. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator, Susanna, and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. And women were considered disciples of Jesus. If we look at the story of Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha are sisters and they're very good friends of Jesus, and Jesus is at their house. And so if you've been in church for long enough, you'll know the story of Mary and Martha. Martha is concerned with the food and the hospitality, or important things. She's trying to make the place nice for Jesus and do all the things that is, are required, but Jesus isn't sort of seeing things in the same way, and Martha comes to Jesus because Mary, her sister, is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, and she's upset about this, but what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So women did not sit at the feet of rabbis in the time of Jesus. They absolutely did not do this. Jesus is acknowledging that Mary is taking her place as one of his disciples. I used to think this was just a story about how important it was to have a quiet time or how much we needed to stop being busy, but that's absolutely, there is so much more going on than that. Jesus' treatment of women was a game changer. What does God think about women? Look at Jesus. God honours and trusts women. 
And he made sure that they were on the receiving end of some of the greatest revelations about Jesus. To Mary, mother of Jesus, that the Messiah was coming and it would be her son. To Martha, that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. And then to Mary Magdalene and the women at the tomb on Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene, the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Mary and the women were the ones who saw and were told that Jesus had risen from the dead. The next greatest, the greatest fact that the the human race has ever known. And then Jesus commissions Mary and the women to go and tell the men. This was in a time when a woman's testimony, as I said, could not be used in a court of law. Jesus knew this. Jesus was intentional. Jesus had come to turn the world upside down. So Jesus is the central figure of Christianity. Christianity is all about Jesus. And Jesus did the very opposite of denigrating women. And I looked up the opposite of denigrate. I looked at the antonym for denigrate and I got applaud, raise, recommend and approve. So if this is how Jesus treated women, then true Christianity does not and should never denigrate or pull down or disempower women. Yet it's often said that Jesus had elevated women to an equal status with men, but the Apostle Paul tore them down. It's a common, common conception of Christianity that as you come beyond the picture of Jesus and you come to the epistles, the letters that define the early church, you get a different picture from the Apostle Paul. We could look at so many different places, and we've only got time for one case study, and I really don't have time to do that as well as I'd like, but we're going to look at the way Paul talks about marriage. It's going to come up on the screen, Ephesians chapter 5. This is what Paul says about marriage. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Apart from the language they're used of Christ and Lord, it's generally feeling a bit Genesis 3-ish, isn't it? (laughs) Where the sense of women need to submit themselves below the man who knows better because he represents Jesus in this situation. How does that line up with everything that we've talked about? Well, let me give you context, two sets of context that you need as we read the Bible. It's how we always read the Bible, in context. The first is the context of the whole of the Scriptures, and that is that when we teach about marriage, it is intrinsically taught, first and foremost, as a picture of God and His people. Throughout the Old Testament, God consistently presents Himself as this faithful spouse, this husband that stands firm by the people of Israel, even though they consistently again and again wander and fail and rebel. Israel is pictured as as an adulterous, unfaithful wife who spits upon her husband blatantly in the way that she commits sin. It's really quite graphic, the way that the Old Testament talks about it. You want to see it in, in full, full steam? The book of Hosea is this effectively prophetic allegory of how lived out in this prophet's life, he experiences adultery and all this awful stuff so that God can say, look at what it looks like. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, and one of the identities that Jesus clearly assumes is that of the bridegroom. Some of John the Baptist's disciples come to his disciples, they're like, why aren't you fasting? We're fasting. Are you guys not getting this? And Jesus says, why would the guests or the friends fast while the bridegroom is still with them? Why is he talking about himself like that? Because if Genesis 1 to 3 is that beginning section that leads to the whole of Scripture, the very end, Revelation 21 to 22, is the culmination of it all, the picture, the paradise that we've all been waiting for. And what are we given? 
the Lamb Jesus who was slain for the sin of the world, coming into this wedding to His bride, the church, now holy and blameless and pure and perfect. That is the trajectory of all of Scripture that sums up everything that we've been talking about. And so when we come to Ephesians 5, that's there. That's really right at the heart of it. We're looking at marriage in a way that is more than just a one man and woman and an institution, but something that represents something of God. And so that comes to our second context. You can't look at those verses about wives submitting without looking at what husbands are called to. Have a look at verse 25. Come up on the screen. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you've been in church for a while, these words may be familiar, but they're incredibly jarring, especially in the first century. Husbands, be willing to empty yourself such that Jesus did, where he was mocked and shamed and murdered for a, a crime that he never committed. What does Christian marriage look like? Fundamentally, it is husbands who are willing to give everything them, of themselves away for the flourishing of their wives. What are wives submitting to? They're not submitting to a lord. They're not submitting to a leader. That, those languages are never used here of the husband themselves. It's only used of Christ. What they're submitting to is a husband who loves. They're submitting to a husband who sacrifices. They're submitting to a husband who, who gives themselves in a way that they love, like they would love their own bodies, verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he acknowledges this is a bit crazy. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And that's the key point here. Not some enduring patriarchal statements about men and women, but a beautiful living parable that marriage has become in the kingdom of living out the drama of redemption, that in our marriages in the church, we should see Jesus come alive and the church being loved in, in purity and beauty. We should look at husbands being willing to give themselves away and, and wives who are receiving that and flourishing and becoming holy and blameless and pure because of the way they're pursuing Jesus together. This is not primarily about women submitting to men, this is a picture of what marriage could be in, in the kingdom, in this place that we find ourselves. So, are there differences between men and women? Absolutely. Uh, is God steamrolling them apart and saying men and women are exactly the same? No. Is He completely dismantling everything that He built in Genesis 1 and 2 of, of men and women made in the... No. Instead, He's creating this beautiful picture of the gospel to be lived out in the everyday life of the church. And it is incredible when marriages start to function like this. It is a light in a world of darkness. It is salt that demonstrates the beauty of Jesus. And, and for those who are married here, this should be incredibly inspiring, not something that feels like it's difficult to bear. This should be something that we long to embody because we get to embody Jesus in the world around us. So not such that Paul is dismissing Jesus, but that Paul is helpfully helping us love Jesus in the context of our marriages. Okay, so in the last four minutes, I'm going to be covering the entire history of the church. So let's see how we go. <laughs> uh, let's have a look at women in the early church, um, the first century church. What happened then? What happened after Jesus had ascended to heaven and had handed all authority over his, to his disciples to spread the gospel? Well, Christianity proved to be incredibly attractive to women, and we have archaeological discoveries and written evidence that shows us that the early church was mainly female. 
And what makes this really interesting is that in the first and second centuries in the Greco-Roman world, the Greco-Roman world was predominantly male. And this is because the Greco-Roman world practiced female infanticide. So what that means is that baby girls were systematically killed because they were girls, and women often died in childbirth. So you had many, many men in the Greco-Roman world, but many, many, many women in the Christian church. And within the church, Christian, outside the church, Christianity was mocked. It was seen as ridiculous by people who were on the outside, precisely because it appealed so much to women. And there's a lovely quote that I have by a second century Greek philosopher whose name is Celsus. And what he said was, Christians want and are only able to convince the foolish, dishonorable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. So that was how Christianity was seen, a religion for women and slaves and children. So women flocked to Christianity because their status was raised within the church. As Nick talked about, the way that Paul wrote to the church was actually revolutionary. We hear Paul's words and with our modern ears, we think it's shocking, but his words were equally shocking in the early church for the opposite reason. Christianity lifted up women and protected women. Christianity um, condemned traditional practices that were relating to divorce and polygamy and incense, incest and um, infidelity. Also within the first century church, women played a huge role in the spread of the gospel message. So Justin read the end of the book of Romans and the verses that we had read to us, Paul includes nine women among the ministry partners that he's addressing alongside the men. So we have Phoebe at the beginning of chapter 16. Phoebe was a deacon and Paul entrusted her to deliver the letters to the Roman church, to let the book of Romans to the Roman church. We know that the Philippian church was built upon the wealth of a financially independent and successful woman called Lydia. And we know that Lydia was probably a congregational leader within that church. So really up until the third century, we see women working alongside men to establish and grow the church. This was the norm. So what happened? Well, I we haven't got time to cover the last 2,000 years, unfortunately, but in a tiny nutshell, over time, the church became fused with the secular Roman world. And then things changed. Christianity became formalized. There was a hierarchical structure that started to get put in place. The church began to gain power and prestige. And financial reward was associated with being part of a church. And so within this context, the influence of women diminished and women's positions came to reflect the culture of the time. And this is so far away from the teachings of Jesus who taught us to serve and to shun and turn away from the pursuit of wealth and status and power. So coming back to the question, does Christianity denigrate women? Well, when the church deviates from the teachings and the actions of Christ, it can. And sadly, it has. So at the beginning, I said that here tonight, there are going to be people who've had many different experiences with Christianity and the church. And for me, I can say so thankfully that my experiences have always been really positive. I have always been involved in churches where women have been celebrated, valued, they have held leadership positions and treated very, very well, especially within this church, I want to say. And I am so grateful, so, so grateful for the leadership of this church. But I have been in churches um, where the culture of the day has definitely infiltrated the messages that we hear coming from the pulpit. So I've been in churches where women have been able to lead, 
and they've been able to do all the things, but paradoxically, I have heard on a number of occasions, I've lost count of the number of times in other churches, I've heard male pastors refer to women in terms of their physical appearance, whether they're attractive or unattractive, whether they are married or single, and that's not great, especially when the Word of God emphasizes a woman's character and her heart as the most important things about her. So I'm using that example just to show you that whenever the culture of the day tries to speak over the messages of Jesus, whether it's anything, women or men or marriage or money, you're going to get distortion and the gospel is going to be twisted. So sadly, throughout history, the church has been affected culturally by patronizing attitudes toward women. And when people take certain Bible passages out of context and use them to dominate or belittle women, the church gets a bad rap. So each person here, as I've said, will have a story to tell, but we hope that you have been encouraged by the tiny bit that we've been able to cover here today. And for those who feel as if they have been treated badly by Christianity in regards to this issue, women and God's heart and thought toward them, it is our prayer that the examples of Jesus and of the early church would help or begin to help to shine a light on what God actually thinks about women, how he sees them, and what his calling is on our lives, to love like Jesus, to spread the gospel, to lead, and to serve in whatever area of life we find ourselves. I'd love to wrap up with a very quick thought that I hope cuts to the heart of what we've been talking about. That when we come to the good news of Jesus, we come face-to-face with a God who looks upon men and women and sees people he values so much that he would send his son to die for them. It sounds simple, but it's the heart of the gospel that God cherishes women and men alike so tenderly that he considers his his, his son's blood shed on a cross a worthy price to, to purchase us back, to redeem us to adopt us as sons and daughters and to bring us back into the life with him. And so I hope that makes this very clear, that when you come to the gospel, it all falls into place. Um, we have an incredible song that our band's going to help, hopefully, z- help us zone in and meditate upon Jesus. So I'd love to encourage you to just take a moment to just breathe and, and reflect on who Jesus and the gospel is to you.